Our current sermon series is called Shadowlands, and we're exploring key moments in the lives of the first two kings of Israel, uh, King Saul, who we just read about, and King David. And in particular, we're going to look at the tension between them as they transition in power. It's a very interesting uh, section of text in the scriptures. Uh, but you might be wondering, why are we studying the political history of an ancient nation? You know, the lives of kings who lived over 3,000 years ago. Well, we're doing this for a few reasons. Uh, the more that we understand how God has acted within history, the better we can understand how he continues to act in the world today. That's one of the reasons we're doing this. But more importantly, by considering the lives of the ancient kings of Israel, we're constantly drawn toward the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ himself. If you weren't here last week, we began our series uh, with a 40,000-foot view. Uh, we looked at the big picture. Israel, they didn't always have a throne and a king. And they say, we want a king so we can be like all the nations. And this is not an innocent request. Samuel says explicitly to them, by doing this, you're rejecting God. And yet God gives them exactly what they want. Because God is willing to walk down the path of rejection to bring about our salvation. Through many imperfect earthly kings, God will bring into the world a perfect and eternal king. Today, we're going to begin looking at the life of Saul. And he's the first king of Israel, as I've already said. And we're looking at his calling and anointing to the throne of Israel, which takes place over two chapters. Now, don't worry, I'm not even going to try to cover everything in two chapters. Uh, if I did, we'd be here until tomorrow, and I'd probably be by myself and very sad. Uh, I'm simply going to touch down on some of the key moments in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. But what we need to keep in mind for this passage as a whole is that Saul's relationship status with God is complicated at best. Saul is exactly like the other kings of the world in every single detail. And even though God will work powerfully through Saul, it's hard to tell if God is blessing his people or cursing his people. And that's because it's both through this first king. So here's the big idea we're going to explore this morning. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. So let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't, everything will be on the screen, and you can take one of those gray Bibles home with you. If you don't own one, it's yours. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There is a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorah, son of Apia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There is not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So we start out with the family background of Saul. You know, he was born into a prestigious and wealthy family among the tribe of Benjamin. He's handsome, like really, really ridiculously good-looking <laughs> handsome. I have waited four years for a Zoolander reference, and I finally got it. He was also very tall. As one person in my community group put it, uh, so you're telling me Saul was tall, dark, and handsome, the trifecta? I was like, yep, Saul's got the trifecta. Most handsome man of all of Israel, we're told. If they had a People's Magazine, he would be on the cover of Sexiest Man Alive in Israel. But all this seems like a strong start. 
You know, and we're drawn to good-looking, charismatic leaders. You know, that's why you're all here, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> but like ancient Israel, it's easy to get caught up in appearances and miss what's going on in the heart. And so throughout this passage, we need to try to be aware that there's these subtle indictments of the first king of Israel. For example, Saul is tall. Now, if you're tall, I'm not condemning you. I just want to say that as a disclaimer. But he is the only Israelite ever described as tall in all of the scriptures. Every other time height is mentioned in the scriptures, it's a description of Israel's enemies. So let's remember, Israel has asked for a king like all the other nations. And God gives them the desires of their heart, even down to the physical details. Here's a king that looks just like the giants of the Philistines. And while being tall may be appealing to the people, it's not meant to be a compliment. It is not flattering. But for now, let's move on to the issue of the donkeys. We read in verse 3, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the young men with you, arise, and go and look for the donkeys. Saul and one of his servants, they head out and they can't find the donkeys. And so after no avail, after searching far and wide, we read in verse 5, Come, let's go back, says Saul, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But his servant said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in the city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. One commentary I read, the commentator wrote, so great was Saul's ineptness that he could not even find a few large asses. His words, not mine. A person's character is often revealed in the face of adversity and challenge, big and small. The loss of a few donkeys for a wealthy family, it's no big deal. But how Saul responds to this crisis is very telling of who Saul is. First, it appears that Saul is clueless about the prophet Samuel. He doesn't even appear to know who he is. And yet the book of Samuel has said that Samuel had a reputation far and wide, that everyone in Israel knew who he was. Even Saul's young servant knows who Samuel is, but Saul doesn't seem to even have the slightest clue who he is. It shouldn't surprise us then that Saul does not appear to seek God in the trials of life. It's actually his servant who's pushing him to seek out God in this matter. Now perhaps Saul thinks that God can't possibly be interested in the small details of life, like missing donkeys. You know, this is beneath God's attention. But when people think God is not a God of the details, it's often very telling of their relationship and view of God. If he's not a God found in the mundane details of life, he can at best be a disinterested deity, but totally uninvolved in our lives. Either Saul sees God this way, a God that is aloof and uninvolved, or worse, he has no thought of God whatsoever. But what the passage shows us is that Paul, uh, Saul has no understanding of spiritual realities. He assumes that spiritual 
favor must be purchased. It must be bought. You have to have something to give and offer in order for the prophet to even speak to you. But this is not how the prophets function. He says, we don't have a present to give. And the servant, the servant of this rich man has to offer up what little possessions he has to prevail upon Saul. And you should know in the rest of the story, there's no mention of the servant giving this up to the prophet. Saul has no understanding of spiritual realities. But the servant prevails. They head out to seek out Samuel. And so let's jump ahead to verse 17 and 20, where Samuel meets Saul. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Which was a way of saying prophet. Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. Before Saul can even get the question out, Samuel says, look, I know why you're here. I know about the donkeys. The donkeys are fine. The donkeys are back at your dad's house. We have more important things to talk about, Saul. You see, Saul's mind, however, it's set on donkeys. It's not set on thrones. You know, he's reluctantly coming to a prophet. He only sees the prophet as a solution to his problem. He's only seeking out God for a quick fix, not for a relationship. And many of us treat God this way. We reach out when we have a problem that we want help with, but we have no interest in following God every single day. You see, Saul's not searching for God, let alone searching to become king of Israel. Then Samuel says to Saul in verse 19, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Underline verse 19 if you have an app or a Bible. This is an important verse. And I would say the NRSV translates it much better than the ESV, which is what we generally use. The NRSV puts it this way. And on whom is all Israel's desire fixed, if not on you, and on all your ancestral house. In other words, Israel desires a king. They desire you, Saul. But the word for desire is actually an ugly one. It's a play on the word covet. Israel covets a king. One scholar notes that this could be translated as, for whom is all the sinful craving of Israel? Israel sinfully craves a king. And like Saul, they're not all that interested in a relationship with God. They only approach God as a means to an end. God, give us a king so we can be like all the nations and not have to trust in you anymore. It's shocking, however, to watch God answer this request. He's heard their cry. He answers it. He gives the people exactly what they want. A king like all the other nations, spiritually deficient, unconcerned about a life-giving relationship with God. Because sometimes we receive what we want instead of what we need because we have to realize the bankruptcy of what we're requesting. Now, we can't know for certain if, Paul, if Saul's picking up on these undertones, but what's clear is Saul knows his place. You know, look at verse 20. He says, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul has his hesitations. Who am I to be king? 
You know, he had no aspirations getting up in that morning, becoming the king of Israel. They didn't even have a king. He's just been looking for donkeys. That's it. And he knows he's not from the most impressive tribe in Israel. He's from the Benjamites. And they are, historically speaking, the most uh, spiritually dense and sinful tribe of all the tribes. If you go back to the book of Judges, chapter 19, the most heinous act in all of Israel's history is committed by the Benjaminites. It's poetic justice. Israel's sinful craving for a king can only be satisfied by the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe with the darkest stain of sin on its history. But Samuel, he's not actually all that concerned with uh, Saul's hesitation. This is the man God has chosen. And so the story continues the next day in chapter 10. Samuel anoints Saul as king. And look at verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Can you imagine? You're searching for donkeys. You find a prophet. You wind up covered in oil. And the prophet says, you're now the king of Israel. How can Saul not like, no, this is true. You know, how is this not just the crazy prophet doing the crazy things prophets do? But to, un- to make sure that Saul understands the legitimacy and the seriousness of what's taking place, Samuel says there's going to be three signs as you leave here, three signs to confirm everything I have done is true. And we're just going to focus in on the third one because it's the most important one. Verse six, Samuel says, the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy and be turned into another man. And it all happens. It all unfolds in the exact order Samuel said it would. But let's focus in again on this third sign. We read in verse 9 and 11. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among him. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? The spirit of the living God rushes upon Saul, just like the spirit of God rushed upon the judges in in their previous history. And profoundly, we read, God gave Saul a brand new heart. The Hebraic idea of heart is not just our emotions, but the center of our will, the place where we make decisions and take action. So the passage is actually saying, Saul has received a new set of core desires, a new will to act upon what God wants for him. And it's such a radical shift that the people who know Saul say, what on earth has happened to Saul? Saul may have set out searching for donkeys, but he returns filled with the spirit of the living God. Which is why we should be completely gutted and shocked at what we read next. Look at verse 14, chapter 10. Saul's uncle said to him and his servants, where'd you go? It's been a while. He said to seek the donkeys. And we saw that they were not to be found. We went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. 
that about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Saul may have received a new heart, but he remains as stubborn as a mule. He may have been promised the throne, but he ends where he began. He's focused on the donkeys, not on God. Saul even withholds what he heard from God. And this is the opposite in every way of what happened when Samuel first heard from the word of the Lord. You might recall in the beginning of the book, Samuel as a young boy hears God speak and his mentor Eli says, tell me what God told you. Don't hold back. And Samuel shares the word of the Lord. He doesn't determine who gets to hear it or not. But Saul withholds this information. When it comes to matters of the kingdom, Matters that should make Saul's new heart beat faster. Saul chooses not to speak about it. You see, the narrative is beginning to hint that even after receiving the Spirit of God, Saul is resistant and conflicted with what God desires for him. Now, this seems like as good a time as any uh, to talk about the donkeys. Why does so much of this story revolve around the donkeys? Anyone wondering? Wrong tangent to go down? Too bad. (laughs) As we see in this passage, you know, donkeys, a collection of donkeys, they can be a sign of wealth and abundance. But it also wasn't uncommon for donkeys to wander off and get lost like we're reading about. And they would often wander away from good pasture to the desert to find their own pasture in the desert. And this is why prophets throughout Israel's history often use the donkey as a metaphor for how God's people will take bustling cities full of life and make them decay into a place where donkeys live, a barren desert devoid of life. God often describes his people as sheep, but here they're not even acting as sheep, they're donkeys. You see, by rejecting God, they're leaving their flourishing land for a desert. And the one set out to find them, the one they desire, their king to be, he can't even restrain them. He can't even bring them back home. Their king can't deliver them where it really counts. And yet, God ensures the donkeys return home. It's a subtle reminder. God does not need an earthly king to seek after his people. God is perfectly capable of saving his people on his own. But the people want a king. They want a king who will be unable to bring them back to God. And just like their king, they're as stubborn as mules. Now, the day of Saul's inauguration arrives. We don't know how much time has passed, but we read about it in verse 20. Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. It's no longer subtle. Saul doesn't want to be king. He hides himself from the public. He doesn't want to be found. He doesn't want a throne. He's in deep conflict with the Spirit of God. You would think this would be a massive red flag. Last week, we announced that uh, Preston will be joining us for our associate pastor. And if I invited him up and we couldn't find him, he's hiding behind baggage, we might question our decision. 
But Saul's reluctance is no barrier for the people. You see, they're so consumed with their sinful desires, they don't care. Look at verse 23. They ran and they took him. Look at that verb. They took him by force. They took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. The people have received exactly what they want, a king, just like all the nations. You'll note Saul's height is mentioned one more time before Samuel cryptically asks, do you see? Do you see who God's chosen for you? But they cry out, long live the king. They're happy to have a king who's as spiritually inept and spiritually resistant as they are. They could care less about his credentials as long as he looks the part. Because Israel at this time is not concerned about having a king who will lead them to God. They just want a king that will give the appearance of them being as strong as the nations. They just want a king who can go out and fight their battles. Now, their king looks the part. And history shows that Saul will even have some success in fighting battles. But he won't be able to save them from themselves. In rejecting God, Israel is settling for good enough. Good enough might work for some time. But it won't help us where it counts. Our hearts will be restless. St. Augustine knew this all too well. Uh, his famous work is Confessions, written around 400 AD. And Augustine in that book recounts theologically and historically his personal conversion to Christianity. And prior to encountering Jesus, Augustine admits to living a rather immoral lifestyle. A defining moment for him was when he was 16. His family uh, always provided for him. He was never in want for food. Yet he decided to steal a pair from his neighbor's orchid. Can you believe it? But he did it just because he could. He stole for the sake of stealing. It gave him a rush, but it didn't satisfy. Now, for us, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But for Augustine, he realized at 16 that something was astray in his own heart. It had what our passage calls sinful cravings that refused to be satisfied even when he indulged in them. He stole for the sake of stealing, and then he just kept doing it. But it did nothing for him. Now Augustine grew up. He ended up becoming well-educated. He was intelligent. He was adept in philosophy. Uh, he spent time trying to improve his life uh, in another religion. And he was uh, even consumed with astrology for a season. But none of it was working. And he was discontent. And so he starts to explore the Christian faith. And he felt drawn to it mostly because of his mother. But he also resisted it, terribly so. He admits that his prayer during this season of exploration was at best, God, give me chastity and self-restraint, but not yet. Anyone praying that prayer these days? God, I want to change just probably next year. Not yet. But it's only after having a personal encounter with the living Lord, having God's spirit rush upon him, that Augustine finally came to see the truth of the words that are now famous. He wrote, 
Our hearts were made for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. Israel's heart will not be satisfied until it rests in their true king, until they seek out his voice instead of listening to their sinful cravings. You see, as long as they're driven by their own desires, as long as they reject God, they will settle for a barren wasteland and it will not satisfy. They'll be like donkeys in the desert. And it's the same for us. Like Israel, many of us here, myself included, we want to look more like the world around us. We want to be more like the cultural you know, identity around us. We get tattoos so everybody knows you have a past. You know, no? Okay. <laughs> After all, our culture, it's, it's obsessed with curating what's become lifestyle brands. You know, that depict freedom and fun and adventure and healthiness. You name it. And the life you want, we're told, is one more purchase around the corner, one more great long weekend away, one more hike up the mountains, the next relationship on. And I could go on and on and on, but often we jump from thing to thing, even good things, because we're not quite convinced that God can truly satisfy our souls. And yet the things we're jumping from and to don't satisfy either. And so rather than turn to God, we say, well, maybe it's something else I'm still looking for because we're not quite convinced it's God who can satisfy these deep yearnings for rest in our hearts. So we look to relationships. We compromise boundaries. We settle for people who don't share the same values. We turn to our possessions, to things, to money, to hobbies, things we enjoy. And some of them can be good things, but we'll look for anything that will help satiate our hearts even temporarily. Like Augustine, we may even do what is wrong because it feels enticing, it feels exciting, it feels new. We'll cross lines that once we said we would never cross because of the false promise that it will satisfy, it will deliver. That as Augustine said, our hearts were made for you, O oh Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. What we deeply yearn for is not a king like all the nations, but our true king. What we deeply yearn for is not to live life to the full, but to live fully for God. Let's return to the donkeys once more. Donkeys need to consistently hear the voice of their master. If they veer off, there's consequences. Getting lost, harming themselves, falling off cliffs, meeting ogres who will get very annoyed with you. Uh, they tend to veer off more than their masters would probably like, but it's in their nature. They're stubborn and they're stupid and they're consistently in need of guidance. Otherwise, they're going to go their own way and not care. Going to the desert. If we're more like the donkeys in this passage... I'm not saying all of you are, but I am. It means we constantly need God's voice. You see, it's not enough to bank on what we did yesterday. We need to constantly hear God's voice and not just hear it and let it pass through our ears, but respond to it as the scriptures say. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. 
Think about it. The Spirit of God himself rushed upon Saul and transformed him, but then Saul didn't continue to walk in the power of the Spirit. And although it was just a recent event, it quickly became a past moment that didn't transform his life in the present. But here's what's beautiful about this passage. The voice of God is easily found. God is speaking again and again and again. He's not difficult to find. He's willing to constantly guide his people, even in the question like, hey, we cast lots, we can't find the guy. Where is he, God? He's behind the baggage. The voice of the Lord is easily found. Even when his people have rejected him, he won't reject them. Four times. Four times in these two chapters. Four times God says, my people. My people. This is grace. They've rejected God outright. They don't desire God, and yet God still calls them my people. Did you notice that God won't even acknowledge Saul as king? He only will acknowledge him as prince. Because only God himself can be their king. Saul may be their king, but it's only a temporary measure. Because our hearts, they are made out. You know, they're made to cry out, long live the king, but they will not be satisfied until we make that cry to the true king. Our hearts will not rest until we cry out to Jesus, long live the king. We can only do this through the power of his spirit. Only the power of his spirit can give us new hearts to cry out to him today and to hear him call us my people. Here's the good news. Stay with me here. Here's the good news. Jesus is not hiding from us. When we search for him, he will be found. He's not inept about spiritual realities, but brings us to God our Father. His character is revealed in challenges both big and small. Every day, all the time in John's gospel, Jesus only did and said what he saw the Father doing and speaking. He was faithful even to the point of the cross. And unlike Saul, he didn't have people cry out, long live the king. He had people cry out, crucify him. And yet he still said, Father, forgive them. Saul reluctantly pursues God. He reluctantly becomes king. We reluctantly pursue God. But Jesus is not reluctant about pursuing the Father. and He is not reluctant about pursuing us, pursuing you. He searches for us. He seeks after us. His voice calls out today if we hear his voice. The Spirit will rush upon us and fill us, whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time. And our hearts, they will not rest until they're in His presence. I realize the question can sometimes be, can I lose my salvation? I don't know if some of you are having that fear. Like, can, if, I, if I can resist the Spirit so much. And this is why... Jesus is the true and better king. What he has accomplished for us on the cross means that if we believe and trust in him, God declares us his people. 
his children. He will not leave or forsake us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. That is secure if you place your faith in him. But today, you have a decision to make. Will you walk in the power of the Spirit? Or will you coast back into your old ways of living? Will you open up your hands, people, and let go of the things you think are giving you satisfaction, that you think are helping you? I heard about this story of a village uh, struggling with a monkey problem, uh, somewhere where monkeys exist. And, 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 and they couldn't figure out how to catch these monkeys. They were elusive. And so one guy figured out. He got a coconut, and he drilled a little hole, and he put almonds in the coconut. And the monkey put its hand in the coconut and grabbed the almonds and wouldn't let go. And its hand was stuck in the coconut. And so they just put a bag over the monkey and took it away. This is how they caught all of the monkeys. Some of us are holding on so tightly to those almonds. Some of us are holding on so tightly to the dream that we had for our own lives that we're resentful to God that things aren't turning out the way we wanted, but we won't let it go. Some of us are holding on to possessions or people or things and we won't let them go and we're missing out. I'm tired of living like the world, aren't you? I'm tired of binging on Netflix and feeling discontent. I'm tired of scrolling through social media and being bored. I'm tired of trying to figure out what restaurant to eat at. I want the spirit of the living God and the promises today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. His spirit is here. His spirit is with us. Jesus is our king and he is for you. That'll preach, as they say. Friends, let's just not depend on our own strength anymore. It's boring. I don't want a boring church. Do you? I don't want a church that's like the rest of my life. I want the spirit of the living God. Jesus gives to us freely because he's our good king who is able to be found if we seek him.